Welcome to 15 Past 15 Season 2. My name is Martin Duesenberry. And I'm Birgitta Morviana. In this season, we're discussing wealth and the writing of history. The topic of wealth can be approached in many ways, in terms of economic inequalities or access to natural resources or, for example, the relationship between labour and wealth production. Today, we're interested in exploring wealth redistribution, less between individuals than between nations and between international institutions. And with that in mind, we're delighted to be joined by Karina Unger, who is Professor of Global and Colonial History in the 19th and 20th centuries at the European University Institute here in Florence. Karina, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Um, let me start off with a question that gets to the heart of the assumption in what I've just said. Is development, about which you've written a recent book, International Development, a post-war history, is development uh, a redistribution of wealth? The way that we know development in the 20th century and especially in the post-war period, it is not about the redistribution of wealth. It is really more about addressing some of the problems that have arisen out of the unequal distribution of wealth and the unequal power structures that are especially a product of imperialism and colonialism, um, and that created large inequalities between the so-called first world and what then would become called the third world. And development assistance addresses some of these inequalities, but in essence does not do away with them. So it is not about really reforming the structures that created these inequalities or that keep them in place, but it is about trying to reduce them to a certain degree. So implicit in what you've said is that particularly in order to understand the post-war history of development, we need to have a much longer historical perspective on this. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you think a historian brings to an understanding of development that, say, a social scientist or a practitioner or a bureaucrat um, doesn't bring? I would think that a historical view of development is informed by two or three additional elements. For one, there is very clear awareness among historians that the idea of development as such is not new. It's not a 1945 product or a 1949 product um, or in any type of uh, post-war phenomenon. The roots go much further back into history. Um, there are, of course, long ideas or old ideas about development one could trace them back to the Enlightenment, but finds them also in other societies, of course. What historians can then add to understandings of development and trying to find solutions to development problems is to say, um, we are not in the first time of history confronted with these problems, and that to a certain degree can be useful, but not in a very practical way necessarily. Another element that I think is important with regard to the history of development is that if we want to understand the unequal structures that I've just mentioned, then it is not sufficient to look at the present. Then it is really important and crucial to go back in the past and to understand how those unequal uh, relationships have emerged in the first place. And therefore, the history of imperialism and colonialism and early phases of globalization are certainly important to understand. So would you to summarize very broadly, say that colonialism or the practice of imperialism are creators of wealth inequality? 
At least to a certain degree, yes. Um, it's certainly not the only reason. There has been, of course, a longer history of trade across geographical regions, and not all of that has always involved colonial or imperial power structures. But the types of development assistance and development thinking that we see in the 20th century, and especially in the second half of the 20th century, were mostly geared at regions and at problems that were very closely linked to these colonial enterprises. So there is an element to that. It's not, of course, restricted to the European colonial empires. Um, one can also see very similar things in regional uh, settings, um, Central Asia and Russia, for example. Um, so it's not one type of colonialism or one type of imperialism. It's very interesting because if I've understood one of the arguments in the book correctly, it's that as you say, the idea of development is not new to the 20th century. It exists earlier, and that certainly in the 19th century, it's tied up very closely with uh, a set of discourses of social reform and poverty alleviation, and also, of course, in a colonial setting, the civilizing mission. So in that sense, I mean, could you also say colonialism is an attempt to enact a redistribution of wealth or a set of development policies as well as exacerbating them? To a certain degree, that's certainly true in the sense that a part of the civilizing mission was to increase the uh, productivity of the colonies in economic terms and towards that goal in the early 20th century, we then see more efforts to also include social elements in that. Um, so there was a certain aspect of developmental improvement thinking or uplift, as it was called, in that period. So it would be wrong to say that the civilizing mission was only a tool uh, to maintain power and to keep the societies in, in that state. At the same time, the civilizing mission was never intended to really equalize power relations or to um, turn the societies in question into really the same type of society. So difference was always at the heart of colonialism and at the heart of the civilizing mission as such. If there had not been any difference left, there would not have been any reason for the civilizing mission to maintain in place. And that was a very important tool for legitimizing colonialism. So in that sense, um, there is a limit to the progressive nature of the civilizing mission. So could you give a concrete example of a colonial power acting as a development aid? Yes, there is um, the example of the Office du Niger, for example, which was a very famous enterprise by the French colonial administration in the post-World War I period um, that is usually understood as part of the reformed understanding of colonial development. So the discovery of development by a colonial power as a way of maintaining the influence on the colonies. And this Office du Niger was an irriga irrigation project that aimed at um, increasing or at least in the first place at introducing and then increasing cotton production uh, in Mali, in today Mali. And um, this was very much a colonial extraction program. It did include some offers, so to say, to the population, but the population was forced to work in this project um, and there was no way of benefiting in any way uh, from this project. So it was not something done for the region, but by the colonial power to gain more from the colony. One of the things your research has shown is that 
development was equally attractive to socialist and capitalist regimes. Why is that? It is because development is such an open and in many ways promising concept that it really lends itself to anyone who has visions for the future and who wants to promise something to whether it's uh, an electorate or an international audience. So a socialist government could promise a more equal access to resources, to education, to healthcare, um, to opportunities in general, um, and argue that this type of development would help to produce a more egalitarian, more um, democratic society in many ways. Um, whereas a non-socialist uh, government, whether it was democratic or authoritarian, could argue that it was useful and beneficial and important to um, advocate economic growth so that everyone in a trickle-down way would benefit from this and that liberal uh, opportunities would be used by individuals. So one can fill development with a large variety of political agendas. Um, and that is why it's also so hard to say what development is supposed to be um, and to also evaluate it, whether it has been successful or not, um, in the eyes of the beholder. So speaking of evaluation of the success of development aid, brings us to the idea and the definition of development it is usually linked to the lack of something, right? But then the question is, who defines what is lacking? That is one of the key problems in development and has always been that it is usually not the people on the so-called ground who decide what is lacking, or they might be the ones who know that, but they're usually not asked about it. So this, in, this difference in power relations that I've mentioned before is reflected and reproduced in exactly this relationship so that those who are uh, in a privileged position economically, politically with regard to education and so on are usually the ones who get to decide or who just decide on their own that there is this problem with, in, with a difference in these kinds of uh, relationships. And that means that it is um, an inbuilt distance uh, that they uh, use to assess the situation somewhere else. Um, and that also means that it is usually their standards uh, that are applied to assess whether a project is successful or not. And that is not necessarily the perspective that would be the most important one to the so-called recipients. So whether it's economic standards uh, or certain um, normative ideas about the good life, um, that can vary to a large degree, but the difference is usually within the different groups involved. And, and I mean, that's quite an abstract set of um, considerations, but sometimes the language is very... Uh, precise and rooted in particular uh, histories. So, I mean, you have a very interesting example of how so many times um, policymakers talk about the recipients of development as living in the Middle Ages, for example. Uh, and there seems to be quite an interesting set of temporal standards that are being used here uh, to define this lack of something. Can you say a little bit more about... Um, the temporal frameworks and perhaps any other frameworks that are used to other the recipient of the aid? The temporal framework is certainly the most 
regular one that we see in trying to describe the the nature uh, the, really the ontological nature of this difference so it's saying we are advanced and they are lagging behind um, and if you want to make that argument then it is not useful to be very specific about the time frame uh, that is being discussed so it's not about defining whether it is 60 years from one country's uh, development uh, experience or 160 years, uh, what is important is that there is an understanding that one society has moved uh, into the future and the other is stuck in the past. And usually this is based then or connected to economic structures and the most important one is industrialization in that regard. So it is the easiest to say those agricultural or rural societies where as we are fully industrialized and fully urbanized, that's the most visible distinction, certainly. And then there are various shades of difference in between, but we still today live with this idea of the industrial world as the most modern world. In fact, your book opens with a wonderful example of this, right, of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation offering 100,000 chickens. Uh, can, you, can you say a little bit more about that episode? It's an episode from 2016 when the Gates Foundation, which engages in development and humanitarian work, offered these chickens to various countries in Africa and to Bolivia. Um, and the idea behind the chicken transfer is that chickens are a good way for women especially to earn a little bit of money on the side, which is then thought to be uh, something for the future of the children, really. So it's about nutrients, it's about um, giving children access to education and so on. And in many ways, this is an example of the currently perhaps most prominent approach to development that is not about the state trying to intervene into existing uh, economic structures, but it is about an NGO trying to improve the lives of individuals by very small means. But Bolivia fought back in this case and rejected this idea that the industrial United States should be giving the so-called agricultural Bolivian economy this type of aid, right? Exactly. The Bolivian Minister of Agriculture was very clear that this was not what Bolivia needed. Um, and this is interesting because it connects two things. One is the, uh, the enmity between Bolivia with a socialist government um, and the United States. So Bolivia would not want to be considered a so-called developing country by its ideological arch enemy uh, and not be suggested that um, some kind of capitalist scheme could solve its problems, which also would mean acknowledging these problems. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that if Bolivia wanted some kind of assistance, then it would certainly not be chickens, then it would be some kind of high-tech <laughs> assistance. Um, and with that is uh, connected, there is a strong link between a gendered understanding of development. So if chickens are geared at women and women in a traditional, so-called traditional setting, in a rural setting, then and that is not the image that Bolivia wants to uh, have of, its, of itself in the world. So regarding your last point, one question comes to mind. What is actually the relationship between gender and development or how, in other words, can this history be written as a gender history? This is something that surprisingly has not been studied uh, to a large degree yet, although 
it seems all over the place, really. Um, the most visible phenomenon is that for most of the 20th century, development was considered to be a purely male affair. So both the experts who were involved on the uh, industrial, uh, industrialized side um, and the governments that were the recipients of aid were mostly men. Um, we see very few women coming in, and there was very little reflection of the fact uh, among experts, among people in the development community, that this was a highly gendered understanding of development. So it was about men being the breadwinners for families, men as the subjects and objects of industrialization and modernization, and women were really very much relegated to the margins. And this is also uh, institutionalized then in the way that development economics became established in that they measured official income and uh, the formal economy, but did not take into account the work that many women in so-called developing countries do, and they are not part of the formal economy, so they are not taken into account. And it's only then in the 1970s that this ignorance uh, of women became apparent. And it's again very telling that it's at that point in time when there was a concern that established development approaches were not working, so women were discovered not so much as women to empower them, but as a resource that should be used. You're talking now about the 1970s, in particular, post-1970s. You talk about critiques emerging. Um, can you say a little bit more about who was behind these critiques of development as it had emerged post-1945 and why? It's a number of actors and groups that are very divergent, and it's not one voice. And in many ways, they were talking uh, or bringing up their critique in parallel. Um, so one group are representatives from the so-called Global South, who had been very unhappy with the way that the Western world, but also to a degree the socialist world, was distributing development aid. Um, they felt, perhaps most importantly, that it was not enough, but also that this development aid was not changing the structures that were in place. Um, there are then these demands for the new international economic order about making access to uh, markets easier for the producers of raw materials, um, rather than giving out aid. So this is one strand. And then there was a second strand that was coming more from within Western societies, and that can be understood more generally as part of the protest movements of the 1960s and 70s that were questioning the technocratic optimism of the post-war period and were criticizing this very strong elite-centered, very male, very um, technocratic approach to development, saying that more grassroots approaches were necessary. And the third strand then is the critique from the more conservative field within Western societies, saying that development aid was not at all as successful as people had believed and that it was a, va a waste of money essentially and that it should therefore be reduced. So it's really very different positions coming together and together they really undermine the trust in the power of development assistance. We started off by talking about what a historian can bring to the study of development and um, one of the things that you've made clear is that behind a lot of development policy throughout the 20th century has been the assumption that particular nations need to catch up with the West. And of course, one of the biggest changes we've seen in the writing of history in the last two decades has been a massive critique of the whole model of catch up in history. 
So uh, do you think that the perspective that you bring to development uh, is also a new way of doing global history? It can be a different way or one way of doing global history. Um, and it has certainly benefited from the fact that there has been more research into the reasons for global inequality. Um, and to a degree, it has been inspired by that. So this understanding that Europe was not necessarily meant to be uh, the most powerful place in the world forever um, has made it possible to look more in more detail um, at the ways in which these inequalities have emerged. And what the study of the history of development, I think, can help us to understand that it is um, not a purely political history that would be decided in European capitals, but there are uh, a variety of actors involved, and that concerns companies that have been highly influential as drivers of development, but also as those actors that provided the technology to make things like the Green Revolution possible in the first place. They have not been studied in great depth, although everyone agrees that they are really crucial if we want to understand um, how these uh, development developments have taken place. Um, the role of NGOs uh, and of private actors is very important in this regard. And so in that sense, the field of the history of development um, has benefited from these trends in global history of opening up perspectives, of looking at connections across geographical and spatial and cultural distances. And it has also contributed um, by doing case studies and showing how it can be done and what the limits are. Karina Unger, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.